I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of Queer Talk. This episode contains discussions that some listeners might find upsetting. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Queer Talk, a brand new queer podcast. Queer Talk shines a light on the LGBTQ plus community and takes a look at some positive news stories about queer life. I'm Spencer and I'm joined by my angelic co-hosts, Mufseen and James. How are you guys? Not bad. We are trying a new setup today, so hopefully there are no no sound problems when it comes to editing or anything like that. But uh, yes, it'd be good to get some feedback from you guys about how this sounds, whether or not it's any different. Please do let us know. We'd love to know your thoughts. Absolutely. Mufseen, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I went shopping this morning to buy a few things for my flat and it's a bit rainy outside because of all the storms. It's really wet on the ground and a truck decided to drive past me and absolutely drench me and my flatmate. It wasn't the best start to the morning, to be fair. And I'm dry now, and I'm warm in this uh, flat with you guys, so it's taking a nice turn. Silver lining to every story. This week was incredibly exciting, as we made our first venture out as um, the Queer Talk team, if you like, to the Pride in London theme launch. Um, It was great to kind of spend some time together and go to that as a trio, if you like. We seem to be spending an awful lot of time together lately, don't we? I'm not, um, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I was going to say, it's been fine. It's, it's nice to have friends. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you need friends. <laughs> Life can be difficult. It's, it's very unusual. I think popping up from Manchester and then just like moving in with you both and like, acting as if we just like three brothers. Um, wait, wait. It's very you, sweet. You've moved in with me. I was going to oh. say, where's this yeah, stuff? I'm not. Are you paying my rent? You didn't see my suitcase in, in the hallway? <laughs> what? So, this episode, we'll be interviewing Paula on living through the AIDS crisis and the role she played in helping both men and women who were HIV positive. Paula, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Are you excited to be on board today? I am, and I've been looking forward to this, so here goes. Okay, so every episode we discuss um, positive LGBTQ news stories. So, James, can you tell us about your story, please? So the new story that I have chosen this week is that the Frozen songwriters are creating a movie musical based on a kid's book about a genderqueer prince. So set in Paris at the dawn of the modern age, the book tells the story of 16-year-old Prince Sebastian, whose parents are hoping to find him a suitable bride. Um, And it's uh, being done by the Academy Award winners Kristen Anderson Lopez and uh, their husband Robert Lopez. Lopez and they have uh, contributed to things like Frozen and Coco, Frozen 2 as well. Um, and so they're working on a movie musical adaptation of Jen Wang's 2018 The Prince and the Dressmaker. Um, so yeah, so it's set in Paris uh, at the dawn of the modern age and it tells about this story about Prince Sebastian. 
He then goes on to find support in one of his uh, loyal servants and in Francis, a dressmaker with dreams of her own. They then go on to help Sebastian become Lady Cristania, um, who goes out on the town and is soon a fashion trendsetter. I think it's really great that we have a movie musical being created by you know, not small names, you know, especially they've done work behind Frozen, like I say, and Coco, to have uh, that kind of uh, representation. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's really exciting to have a story that's accessible for our community. I I think um, the generic stuff comes, you know, stories are repeated time and time again. So to have a story like this that we can just watch and it's exciting. And again, with it being um, a kid's film, it's, it's going to be fun and creative and, and colourful and loud. And I think that's really exciting. And the musical element, I mean, I'm sure we're going to be like humming the song for the next two years like we were with Frozen, which is neither a good or a bad thing. Do you know what? I've never seen Frozen. You've what? never seen Frozen? Just don't just leave me. right now. I've never seen Shame it. on you. Paula, have you seen either Frozen or Frozen 2? I've seen both. Yeah. Okay. I have the outfits. Sorry. You're the outside. Although... You have the outfit. <laughs> I have the outfits. Coco. <laughs> you are my ice queen, Paula. You're, you're definitely icy inside, aren't I imagine you? you look fabulous in like, a lovely blonde Absolutely. plaited number. Definitely me, swizzling around. <laughs> but Coco was fabulous, though. Loved Coco. Though. Coco was really good. Brought good tears Coco made me cry. Yeah. And I don't cry often. Like, I don't have much emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I cried on the plane to watching Coco. I just remember being sat there and surrounded by loads of strangers. I can't remember. I think I was coming back from New Zealand or something like that. And I remember just watching it. Mm. Like, <laughs> I'm a mess. So this film is by people who've worked on Frozen. Is it by Disney as well? I don't believe so, because it's fair to say that um, Disney at the moment don't necessarily have the best relationship with the... Uh, LGBTQ plus. I was community. going to say they might not consider it to be family friendly. Family friendly, and this. Go on. Sorry, I was. Just, um, so, it's kind of related to this. Is Disney have pulled the Love Simon spin-off, which is called Love Victor, uh, because it is not family friendly. It just makes you roll your eyes, doesn't it? A bit, really. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that Disney have created a film that's based around bestiality, and that's family friendly. But we're okay about. We're not good about homosexuality. Um, which film was that? Beauty and the Beast. Is it about bestiality? Come on now. She falls in love with a beast. A yeah. literal beast. Yes, okay, hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't object. Sorry, how hot is he? <laughs> okay, just to rewind. Disney have just launched a subscription service like Netflix. And this, this is coming from that. They've pulled it. They're releasing supposedly everything they've ever done. Dating... Far back as like yeah, they're the releasing 70s. the archives, and and I'm I'm interested to see the list of things they're not including because we've only the headlines are saying it's the Love Simon spin-off. I'm interested to see what else didn't make the cut. No, that's very for fair. the subscription service. Yeah, it's interesting how they classify these things because yes. I'm sure Disney Plus will have lots of Avengers shows where women are wearing tight clothes and there's going to be kissing and all this stuff. How is that not adult themed? Yeah. Kissing's disgusting. And I'm sorry, but if there's <laughs> kissing is disgusting. I don't no, do it as a rule. I don't do it anymore. Um, Speak for yourselves. But if you have a TV series called Love Victor and it's a teenage boy coming of age exploring his sexuality, I doubt it's going to be you know, actually adult themed. Yes. Yeah. So it's 
pulls into question like what like why exactly have they pulled this and we need to talk about it but you know this tv series will live on in another um studio so i think it's going to be um i think it's going to be released on hulu or something else great so it does live on um, but yeah, this is why I was wondering if um, yeah, the Prince no, show is actually... But I think that um, with any news story, I think if you can use a, a line like Disney or a, or a name like Disney mm. in there, then it probably gets the clicks like it did mine. But um, yeah, no, it's exciting to see that um, people of such high profile are looking to work on something that is about someone who identifies as, as genderqueer because... From the LGBTQ plus spectrum, that's that's not something we've really heard of. So I think it would be it's good to have that level of representation. Oh yeah, I always say we need more stories like this in TV, film, everywhere. Spencer, what is your news story this week? My story looks at Sadiq Khan, who vowed this week to, if re-elected, to continue to support Pride in London, UK Black Pride, and the new LGBTQ community centre that. Um, they're working on I think Sadiq mentions I don't know if this is part of just appealing to us but I think time and time again he has stood up for the community he was the first mayor of London to march at the front of the Pride Parade last year in Pride, um, Pride in London I feel like he's marched at the front of the Pride a couple of times okay but he was the first mayor of London to do so yeah so you know in terms of solidarity, visibility, like that's very impressive. So Sadiq mentioned in his statement some pressing issues like inclusive education within schools, campaigning for PrEP to be available to everyone and tackling both the rise in homophobia and transphobia. And I just think, whilst to us, it's it's a given that people should be working towards these things, to have someone in, in such a position just comment on it and, and pledge support in, in a, such a position of power to know that in the future they're going to continue to support. I think quite often things happen like in the moment and we're like, we'll, we'll grab onto this for as long as it lasts. And I think Sadiq is stating that this needs to continue, this needs to go on. And for me, that, that's really exciting and really like heartwarming to see someone's got our back that's in a position of power because that's what we need more of. I noticed a, f- a few people. A few people took issue with this and questioned Sadiq's motives and um, actions. But I think it's. I think it's key to compare to our previous mayor of London. Yeah, who is that, Spencer? Mr. Boris Johnson himself, the one and only, who hasn't so much showed so much support towards the community. And for me personally, because I'm a queer Muslim, it's really important that Sadiq Khan, as a straight male Muslim is always very supportive LGBT. And that in itself, I'm sure, has made a lot of ripples in a lot of communities and may have you know, possibly affected a lot of queer Muslim lives. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. Another aspect, he mentions the LGBTQ Community Centre. The aim with this centre, I think they're still trying to figure out where to place it and, and make sure that it can be funded for a long period of time rather than a temporary space. The aim with the centre is to basically provide a space for those who need a sober space, a safe space, somewhere to go in the daytime rather than, you know, I think our community is heavily dominated by nightlife and, and club culture and in terms of places to go. So I think its its aim is to, to be a sober space and also an intergenerational space. 
myself and Paula have just recently collaborated for, for the Love of Queers on a campaign connecting the older generation of LGBTQ plus people and the younger generation and looking at the difference in problems and, and issues and even positives that we've faced, kind of comparing our journeys. I think a space that could potentially host both groups of people as well as other groups of people and, and open up those conversations, that's going to benefit our community massively. I agree. The irony is that in Farringdon, back in the day, that is exactly what we had. We had a massive LGBT community space where we could meet uh, throughout the week. There would be different activities. You could go in in terms of crisis. And it was closed, I think... I can't remember how long ago now. But, I mean, it is, we're going almost like we're re-seeking out those spaces because we need them. And I think, for me, that is where I feel a little bit heart sore that we're having to do that. But the community centre back in the day was phenomenal with the best Mm. tea dancers on a Sunday. Mm. And it was very mixed. So you would have people in their 60s and 70s alongside teenagers who were just coming out so I think it's amazing it's happening but it's sad we lost it in the first place yeah and do you think we lost that space because the world became more digital we could communicate without having physical space so that's why we lost that that space was actually a big massive bar now so it's Mm. it's it's corporate it's been taken over it's right in the heart it's on Farringdon just near the bridge Mm. so it's prime position so the queers got kicked out and the straights went in there with their cocktails that really that really hurts because it happens to so many lgbt venues in london i remember going to the joiners arms when i first moved to london i love that place and now it's no longer there but i think if across london it's really sad to see how many venues are no longer. We had, I think, we used to complain, uh, saying, "Oh, there wasn't enough." But they, we were spoilt for choice, and I think trying to reclaim spaces now is a lot harder in lots of different ways. Yeah. Isn't RVT the only LGBT venue that's um, protected? Yes, but that's yeah because it's yeah. historic. It's grade listed. Yeah. Okay, so Mufsin, please share your new story with us. I think, Spencer, you mentioned it earlier in your intro that we went to the Pride in London theme launch. So my, my story is Pride in London has released a new theme for this year, as they do every year. And in previous years, we've had different hashtag themes just to get everyone who comes to Pride behind one movement and put the focus on different issues and different subject matters. So in the previous years, we've had Pride Heroes, hashtag no filter, Love Happens Here was a very popular one, Pride Matters, and last year we had Pride Jubilee, which celebrated the 50 years of the Pride movement from Stonewall. And the last year was very reflective. It was very looking, very much looking back at the 50 years, how far we've come with different legislation and the different people who've been part of the movement. Um, and this year they've released a theme where we actually look at our present day and kind of touching on what Paula was saying earlier about uh, our community being quite fragmented now and we have to put the focus back on supporting each other within the LGBTQI+. The theme for Pride in London 2020 is four simple words. It's you, me, us, we, and it's a chant which is calling for support, queer allyship between the different communities 
in our LGBT population. And it's important for me because I know last year we, at the front of the parade, we had L with a T leading the parade. And we also had banners for G with a T, B with a T, and I think there was one for Pride with a T. And that was showing support right at the front of the parade for the trans community. We're at a time where transphobic attacks have, I think, risen risen by five times. Mm-hmm. And you know we can't ignore that. And we need to do more to support our siblings within our community. And I think this theme really touches on that. What do you guys think about it? I think it's a really good thing. Um, and one of the things I remember talking about during the launch night itself was the fact that actually it doesn't have any gendered pronouns in it. It's a very collective uh, set of words in that, you know, we can all identify with one of those words, which actually, if you think about it these days, that's a very difficult thing to do to be able to identify with only four words provided. So I think from a uh, from a theme perspective, you know, it was very, very good. And they made the point on the night as well was that 2019 was about looking back and what they didn't necessarily want to do was look forward, but look at the present and see what was going on and make sure that we were living in the present. Because I think sometimes, especially within the queer space, we can be quite guilty of looking into the future and saying, right, okay, so we want this and we want that. And it's like, let's pause a second and like, how are we doing now? Like, you know, let's support one another. Talking of a call for more support in our community, from our community, Paula is here with us today. Um, Paula currently works for LGBTQ plus over 50s charity Opening Doors London and has a long history of supporting the community. Paula, we met a couple of weeks ago for the collaboration we did with... um, for LGBTQ History Month. You work for Opening Doors, I run my Instagram page and we wanted to connect the two generations which we mentioned earlier. Um, and as a result of that, we, we shared the content on both of our platforms and you mentioned that you've had a bit of a backlash. Some people have pulled you up on things and tried to correct things and pointed things out. That in itself, shows off the need for this campaign that we need to support our community right yes i feel we're quite fragmented i think in terms of uh terminology um a huge battle about the reclaiming of queer i identify as queer i always have done um not that i'm removing the lesbian in me because i'm not right but that's how i see myself and i think there have been times where queer has been quite fractious I think it's important that we reclaim it because you're actually wiping me out and not only that but you're wiping out a large number of our community and hopefully with something like Pride that we can actually bring that back under the same banner because we need to be unified Um, the great wide world outside us is not supportive and is quite hostile and I think until we start to address that and sort our own battles out then it'll only get worse. When you say fragmentation, do you mean fragmentation between LGBT or do you mean fragmentation between the older generation and the younger generation? I think a combination of everything. Mm. I think definitely within us as a community of queers or or however we identify, definitely we're fighting each other. Um, And then in the great wide world, and I think there is a difference. I worked for UIP Films many moons ago. And I joined an environment where 
my predecessor was a gay man and the woman I worked with worked with him under no problem at all. Over the course of me being there for about a year, I kept my private life, just that, private. Not that I'm hiding anything, but in a professional environment, I think that's what we should be doing. Uh, my partner, six foot blonde, came to a um, woman, came to a screening and um, my co-worker was there. And I handed my partner the keys at the end of the night and kissed each other on the cheek, nothing again. We could have been purely friends. The following day at work, um, my boss sort of said, um, so do you have cats? And I was like, yes. And she went, oh and their names, and I was like, Colette and Tallulah. And I went Tallulah off to Tallulah in Bugsy Malone, Jodie Foster. Yeah. Um, and I could see it all kind of ka-chinging in her head. And literally within, I think, maybe a month, two months, one of the, again, another woman I was working with, was very close with, who knew my partner, and we'd been out, a straight woman, and we'd been out on a number of occasions. We had just done a big premiere at um, Regent's, park zoo and we got a taxi home and she burst into tears and she just said they're out to get you and I went like what do you mean and she said they know that you're gay and I went well what's the problem with that she said they're out to get you and literally within two weeks I was called into the office my boss sat opposite me with the managing director and they said well there's a clash of personalities here's your paycheck and you're leaving um I packed up and left within sort of like 48 hours type of thing and decided to go and visit my um, family who live in South Africa. So when you returned from South Africa, how did you recover from that and where did you kind of go from there? How did you, how did you seek a new job? Were you worried about that happening again in the next place and the next place? And I went straight into clubs. Amazing. I did um, club promoter. I worked, I had I think at one point, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Three club nights a week and literally lost myself in queer land. I was a door bitch on a club night called Queer Nation. <laughs> I think my reputation was quite fearful. And I, for me, in terms of HIV, this was suddenly um, an area that, having been such a... T- can we, Anybody who went to Queer Nation will know that was like a tight family in every essence of what that actually means. We're kind of a hybrid of people who came to together once a week. In terms of HIV, I suddenly 
people started to disappear and not come as regularly and it created and I was also doing heaven I had a club night called uh, the fruit machine at heaven so I was three days a week I was in and out doing all of this and then suddenly more and more people wouldn't come and it got to a culture where you were frightened to ask where Philip was or Peter because they may have died they may have gone into hospital just that and also at that time um, I picked up a copy of Vanity Fair and we also had at that point the tombstone ads um, of HIV and AIDS and when I first saw them I thought it was sort of like the fish were dying or something so I couldn't it was that kind of very mixed message message Mm. Um, the reality also in terms of um, HIV we all knew that it affected everybody in a blanket statement but Um, I think for me, picking up a copy of Vanity Fair that had an article on um, the it woman of the time called Tina Chow, who was a model, she'd been married to Mr Chow, who was a restaurateur, had suddenly been diagnosed with HIV. And for me, that sudden realisation, this is actually something that affects women. And then for me, it was like, okay, so what are the agencies in London that's supporting positive women. At that point, I also had a huge fear around hospitals, so the combination of the two just didn't fit in. I found an organisation that provided support to positive women only, and it felt quite not something that felt comfortable for me. I had one crazy night where this beautiful woman walked in collecting for a HIV charity, which was part of a mainstream uh, generic HIV agency who's then started to talk to me about women and HIV and the huge growth of women and I volunteered my services as kind of fundraiser. My fear of hospitals had to be addressed really quickly. If I had to visit somebody in hospital I would literally go an hour before I went in and just walk around to try and get that courage to go in and then obviously faced with the reality of perhaps not even meeting the person beforehand with somebody unwell in, in, in the wards. Huge battle in terms of um, gay-straight transmission. The majority of women we saw had contracted HIV through heterosexual sex. Um, very few drug users. Um, the average age of the women who were coming to the support group were 22, 23. So for me, that sudden impact of women younger than me, so young. um, living with HIV and that whole fear of what happens next. Uh, the majority of drugs at the time, um, 80% were tested on men. So the physical side of the side effects, for instance, in terms of women were completely different. What kind of side effects? Fat distribution around the body, mm. um, in terms of people of colour, um, pigmentation change. I had um, this one woman from uh, Nigeria, dark-skinned, started this form of treatment and I didn't see her for a couple of months. Um, phone contact, we maintained phone contact quite a lot and she came in and she went, hi, I'm back. And I turned around and she was fair-skinned and she went, oh my God, HIV's done this to me, it's the best thing. <sighs> Joking, but this is something I think nobody in terms of the side effects really addressed. Yeah. And then you throw in children into that, and children at that point 
were kind of almost guinea pigs in terms of the treatment. The side effects for a lot of those drugs were toxic. Um, quality of life was always questioned in terms of um, almost is it worth taking the treatments in terms of what it actually does to you. Yeah. In the early days, in terms of HIV, there was a massive battle between straight and gay transmission in the UK. Support agencies in the very early days were tokenistic towards women. And then you had the huge impact that a large percentage of those women were from the black communities. So it fed, they were tokenistic to start off with, and then it was like, oh yeah, let's just cover the kind of black thing. And... Then the reality in terms of the more people who turned to access those services, there was a battle for money. Um, the gay community, the whole thing around the sanitisation of AIDS was a real issue because they were fearful that money would be taken from the support services for gay men and fed into mainstream support around families. You had the battle in the mainstream where you had the press going, gay plague. And grid as well, it was gay-related immune deficiency. And nobody talks about, as you said, the women and the children that have been living with HIV in this country. When we started, we had over 2,000 families who were accessing services. I, having been a kind of key figure on the gay scene and losing a lot of my gay male friends and supporting uh, friends through quite a lot. I had a friend of mine who was a rent boy, and for him, when he was diagnosed, he thought, fuck it, I'm not going to live long, I'm going to go and live in sitches, and off he toodled. So for me, it was about supporting my friends, but then the realisation at the end of the day, there are women that are living with HIV, and there are no services being provided whatsoever. So I had that not a battle for me so much, but a battle in terms of quite a lot of my gay friends found and challenged me in the fact that I supposedly was betraying them. One instance, for instance, uh, we used to work uh, long days, 12-hour days, six-day weeks, and we had a support session which didn't finish till about, by the time we got about half past 11 at night, and I'd come out to go home and there was this gay guy and his boyfriend, who I know, and I've known him for a long time, and they just went off at me. How dare I betray them? Um, his boyfriend had a baseball bat. Um, they stepped f towards me, and I just thought, okay, I have no idea where this is going to go. Uh, he was angry. You, I can't believe you've taken this from us. This whole sort of dialogue, and I was so exhausted. I just said to him, if you're going to do something, can you do it quickly? Because I want to go home. And for me, that battle was continuous. I lost a lot of friends in terms of um, not only through HIV in terms of that respect, but in terms of me not supporting gay men. I am a woman at the end of the day, and for me, this was a whole group of people that whose issues were not being met at all. There was no dialogue, for instance, around heterosexual positive men. Um, the majority of women we saw, the straight, had contracted HIV through heterosexual partners. For a lot of straight men, when they were diagnosed, denial, immediate denial. Um, I am not a gay man, I'm not bisexual, I'm not a drug user, it's not me. And this was a very uh, strong discussion in terms of them. Alongside that, then you then had um, the uh, criminalisation of HIV which again became really problematic because for a lot of people there was this huge area of denial in terms of if you're going to have sex with a partner, do you tell them? 
Or like whose responsibility whose is responsibility it? Yeah, yeah. in that? Now, if you think it's not you and you are in that head frame, then that is huge. But at the end of the day, as adults, we should all have responsibility for our sexual health. And for women, negotiating condom use with straight guys is a nightmare. And at the end of the day, how do you do that? It's And when you disclose, are they going to out you? You know, you're talking about, say, the black community. You're talking about South Asian community, where the fact that you're HIV positive and having sex at some point is for some young women you shouldn't have been doing because it's against your culture it's against your religion and here you are hiv positive to then try and negotiate condom use it was loaded so hiv at that time in the sort of like 90s was a battlefield on every aspect of of hiv so you you mention losing people even when you're working so hard like how did you kind of process that I think what kept me grounded in a very kind of trivial sort of way was the fact I actually did have my clubland life. Yeah. That kind of, um, I don't do drugs as such, I drink loads. (laughs) So for me, there was that outlet. Mm. Um, My close network of friends very rarely saw me, so our communication, and as before social media, we'd pick up the phone. Or I used to write postcards so quite a few of my friends have got literally batches of postcards that I used to send them go, I'm thinking of you. So for me, just having that kind of like almost touch base outside there and also coming, I mean, HIV for me was something very new and setting up an org- organisation. I come from a media background in disco dancing and suddenly I was in a very adult world of trying to support people that literally had no support services. Mm. So it was a kind of learning as you go along experience for me. I had friends of mine who, um, I one particular friend that I had loved to pieces, lost his partner, lost friends around him, remained negative, but suddenly phoned me up one day and he said, "Oh, I've joined the club," and I'm like, "What do you mean, Macrame?" And he's like, "No, I'm." HIV positive and I was so angry and for him there was this whole culture around being excluded from the gang talking about meds talking about and being on the outside of that and then there was literally groups of people gay men who would go to um, parties or uh, dark rooms the dark rooms back rooms dark rooms rooms, yeah yeah. I, i wouldn't know but yeah but would go on the understanding that it would be unprotected sex and there would be positive people there and it would be like oh have i managed to come out of this and still be negative and it was called chasing the bug chasing the bug it's called chasing the bug and this came out i can't remember what year this was in like the 95 6 7 around about then and Rolling Stone had done an amazing article about this and the gay community just went, oh my God, it's outrageous, this doesn't happen. It did, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that for me, that kind of huge imbalance of communities and HIV was huge. And how do you just, how do you actually put I mean, that in your head and work that out? I can't put myself into the mind frame of those people, but I would imagine with living in, in those times, getting the bug would just 
be such a relief because you no longer have to look behind your shoulders or question the people you're having sex with because you've already got it. But then but, people I mean, were dying so quickly. Mm-hmm. This was a time before meds. So I would be going to three or four funerals from people who I'm supporting as in terms of the organisation I was part of and then my friends. And you kind of go, and it's not a pleasant death. No. So you think, is this really worth it? You know, you're now included in that group, but is this really worth you having this kind of like strange desire to become HIV positive because you're now part of the gang? Yeah, I find it so hard to try to empathise and understand why someone would do that. Do you, do you think there was a fear of being left behind? Definitely. Um, I think, I mean, it's it kind of rippled out on all sorts of different levels in terms of um, the only two positive lesbians that potentially presented um, actually had Munchausen's. What, what's that? What is that? Munchausen's, and it can be related to any illness where you take on that illness so you could have say I've got cancer and in fact you haven't got cancer and but you would live the life of somebody who had cancer and the two lesbians that presented to us at that time said they were HIV positive and they weren't because they wanted again to be included in that so is that a it's a, would, it's a mental someone, health would, would it's a mental say health issue. they're HIV positive because they really believe it and they want to believe it and, and to be included. Yeah. And to yeah. be included, yeah. Yeah, in that kind of battle against HIV. Mm. I mean, one woman, um, and because as the services became busier and busier, you would have to present an original letter of diagnosis. And there was one woman working for a major charity at the time, and we'd known her for quite a while, but we kept saying, we need your letter of diagnosis. And she couldn't produce it, and she had gone in to do this massive talk and the night before she was supposed to do this presentation, she committed suicide. And this was all due to the fact that at some point in the very near future, she would have been discovered her status was not positive. Wow. So That's HIV that. created a fucking mess. I think one of the very first um, sessions that we had, where I met a young boy of uh, 14. He'd been positive from birth. Uh, he had an older brother who was 16 and very unwell. He was Ethiopian. Um, his entire family had died and he was in care. Um, he was told, I think at 14, that he'd be lucky if he would survive to be 16 because of his health. Um, his brother died and uh, he... Um, managed life as best as he could um today he is married he has a child um and i think that that for me is part of why i did what i did at the time um i learned a lot from a lot of the young people that i work with um, about how they see life for him at the age of 14 losing his brother his entire family it was like fuck you i'm gonna get through this he smoked a lot of spliff um, and the only thing that he could control in his life was his meds so he would not take them at times and that in terms of his physical health deteriorated at times but he survived and is strong I think 
we sat down and by the time he was 16 he just met a girl at school and he called me in and he said I need to speak to you um, and I was like oh my god you know what is this and he said right I've met this girl at school um, do I tell her I'm HIV positive before or after I kiss her and that was just like he's an teenager his first kiss and this is his biggest dilemma is like telling somebody his peer at school if she freaked out would she tell the whole school would he be rejected would yeah. that have an impact on on him um you know so those sort of issues and those sort of realities aren't and haven't been really talked about i mean it's it's exactly those situations where ongoing support is needed Definitely. I mean, for him, um, he remained within, and also peer group. I mean, he mm. first, again, for him, it was the first time he met other HIV positive teenagers. And that peer support, as does with adults, is so vital. We also had trans women who access services. Mm -hmm. So we had this woman uh, come to us for services and um, she'd gone in and see the information officer and the information officer said, um, okay, we have somebody here, she's a trans woman. We're like, Okay, so this is again in the 90s, late 90s. Fine, that's absolutely fine. She can access services. She tried to access services for positive women only. They wouldn't accept her. Obviously, within a gay male service, she couldn't access just because life's different. So she remained with us for quite a while in terms of her accessing services. And again, to think that our demographic is primarily black African women, Asian women. So... Nobody battered an eyelid, she accessed services, there was no confrontation and uh, she left after a while. And then, must have been about three, four years ago, I was at the Ministry of Sound, disco dancing, with a friend and as I, we sat down to have a chat, this woman kept staring at me and she came in and she goes, oh God, I'm so tired, I've just split up for my boyfriend. Um... You know, and we were chatting and she kept grabbing me going, oh, you feel so familiar. And I was going, you feel familiar. Oh, my God, this is amazing. And we was like, my friend sitting there going, like, what the fuck? I had no idea who this woman was. And I said, I feel like I know you. And she's going, yeah. And she goes, oh, God, my friends have arrived. And off she went. And in the cab going home, I clicked. It was the same woman who'd come to us at the organisation all those years back. And if I'd remembered there and then, I couldn't have gone, oh, actually, I remember you coming in for support back mm. in the day. But the fact that she's still around, she's still, you know, for me, it was like, okay, there you are again. Yeah. I have so much admiration for you. You would have helped so many people. But you would have done so it. Many I think you would have, I think I felt the challenge because there was nothing for women. You know, there was one organisation that provided support to positive women only. Mm. And it was like, this has to be addressed. And then you have the whole race issue thrown in as well. It was like, whoa, it was just... But I was like, no, we have to do this. And I think you would. You would if there was nothing, you would find something. Yeah. Yeah. 100% you would. I think it's fair to say that I speak for everybody when I say just thank you very much for all the work that you've done and, and for, for helping people because it's... We need people like you to, to support the community um, and it makes it a better place. So thank you so much for it. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
And that, everyone, is the end of the third episode of Queer Talk. Make sure to follow us on the socials to keep up to date with what we're up to. On Instagram, we are queer underscore talk. And on Twitter, we are queer talk underscore. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. For anyone affected by the subjects talked about in this podcast, please contact the Samaritans on 116123 or the LGBT switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Thank you.